Titus 3 says, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we could become heirs with the hope of eternal life. God's good. God's good. Father, help us to remember that today. Help us as we wrestle with our own struggles, our disappointments, the things that overwhelm our hearts, the, the reality that right now our faith still isn't sight, it's still faith. God, help us as we struggle with the, the, the very real struggles of every day. God, help us to remember how good you are to us. Help us to remember that in those times that we rebelled against you, how we had cursed your name, how we had not only just walked away from you, but we had tried to throw a coup against you. But Father, you still reached down in your love for us and through Christ saved us. Lord, I pray this morning we'd be reminded of your goodness no matter what our life is saying to us. Father, may we fix our eyes on Jesus. It's in his good name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. If you got your Bibles there, I hope you do have your Bibles. If you don't, we have some available in the back, but I'm going to invite you to take your Bible and go to Proverbs chapter 13. That's where we're going to be this morning. Proverbs chapter 13. Proverbs chapter 13. We've been doing a series in the book of Proverbs. We're coming close to wrapping it up. Uh, We've got this week and then two more weeks that follow. Um, This is probably, um, I'm going to shoot straight and honest straight out of the gate, the most difficult message to preach since I've been at Uniontown Bible Church. Just over two years now, in case you're keeping track. Happy birthday. I'm just kidding. Um, So... The, the reality is, is this is why, because I cannot look at this verse, I can't think through this passage and try to apply it without realizing that there is not a single person sitting in this room, whether you're young or old, or you think you're young, or you think you're old, that this verse doesn't apply to. Because what this verse is about is disappointment. Anybody familiar with disappointment. All right, good, good. That makes me feel a little bit better. So in case you need a little definition of disappointment, I found this definition online. It says this, disappointment is when you think you have abs, but then you realize it's just lines in your stomach from sitting down too long. (laughs) So there you are. We're all familiar with disappointment to a different degree. Disappointment is real. Disappointment is something that affects every single one of us. I, I, How we deal with disappointment is going to determine much. It's going to determine success in God's eyes. Not success in man's eyes, but success in God's eyes. Because how we deal with disappointment is a picture of how we deal with God when his ways aren't our ways. There's a story that somebody told about a um, a mom who was really concerned, and she had grabbed her neighbor and said, listen, my, my son's trying out for the play, and he is a terrible actor. There is no chance in the world this kid is getting a role in this play. And so every day he would go off, and he would be like, mom, this is it. I'm, I'm going to end up in Hollywood. I'm going to be famous. And mom knew the reality of the fact that the young man stunk at acting. 
And so she was confiding in her neighbor, and her neighbor's like, let's, let's just encourage him. And then the day was coming. Today's the day we're going to announce the roles. And so her neighbor went with her, and they stood outside the school for this young man to come out. And they were expecting him to come out in weeping and gnashing of teeth. But instead, he came running out with eyes shining with pride and excitement. He said, guess what, Mom? I've been chosen to clap and cheer. Is that how you deal with disappointment? Proverbs 13, verse 12 says this. Hope delayed makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope delayed makes the heart sick. Disappointment is a normal part of our everyday lives in this world. That's what Solomon is, is making clear here. He's not, he's not giving us a prescription here. He's being descriptive. He's, he's normalizing something that we all experience in life. And that's, that should encourage every single one of us. The Bible does not minimize nor try to hide the fact that in everyday life, you and I are going to deal with disappointment. It doesn't try to, to, to sugarcoat anything. It doesn't try to make it look like everything's happy. Like that dumb Lego song that every time I say everything is, that song comes to mind. Everything is awesome. That's not the truth. The Bible doesn't portray it like that. And, and God forbid, and, and shame on us for picturing it that way to people who are going through dark and difficult times. The beauty of, of, of God in our lives, the beauty of his word in our lives is what he does is he engages us where we're at. And so even here, Solomon says, in your lives, disappointment is real. And let me, let me kind of just walk through that first phrase. Hope de delayed makes the heart sick. Hope, that's a dream, a desire. It's an expectation. It's the plans of your heart. These things, these hopes that you have, that you carry into life, aren't bad things. Usually they're good things. They're actually things that not only would God not speak against these things, he, he would actually plant them in you as a natural desire or a goal of good intent. That's hope. Delayed means to be drawn out, deferred, prolonged, dragging on. It doesn't matter how old you are, none of us like those words. Do you realize how impatient we've become as people? We go through a drive-thru and we get upset that it takes us three minutes to get a meal. Some would argue if it's really a meal, but it, to get a meal that otherwise you would have to go home and cook for 15, 20, almost 30 minutes. <gasps> we argue when we get the little whirly thing on our computer when it takes us almost, almost 10 seconds to connect to a website that's in India. That's how impatient we've become. And so when you look at something like this, when your dreams are delayed or drawn out, we're very impatient people. And I would note, and I think this will come true as we continue to talk through this, I would, I would note and make sure we all are aware of the fact that some of these delays, in fact, turn into no's. Some of these delays are later, later, later. You know, y'all hated those as kids. Later, later, and then eventually, never. Hope delayed makes the heart sick. It is exactly what it sounds like. Weak, faint, diseased, wounded, 
injured. He's saying that when those hopes, those dreams we have are delayed, even denied, that it makes the deepest part of us, our hearts, injured. And that can look like sadness, um, heartache, frustration, hopelessness, discouragement, even depression. I mean, there are times in our lives when, when our dreams, our hopes are so long delayed or in such ways that they're denied that, that the feeling we have in our heart really is, is the same as a physical sickness. Does that sound like something you've experienced before? Don't say it out loud. But what was it? What disappointment did you experience in your life that made you feel like that? Don't say it out loud. But what is it? See, not all of our disappointments are on equal levels. Not all of our disappointments reach like Richter scale level. I, one of the, <laughs> this is dumb. Um, one of the greatest disappointments I have is when I go into the freezer and I see my mint chocolate chip ice cream container in there and I'm all excited and I take it out and I realize there's like half a spoonful because my children are evil. <laughs> it's a disappointment. I mean, it doesn't register on the same level as some of the other ones, but it's a disappointment. Well, what's interesting is, is, is one person can look at a specific situation from one angle, another person can look at the same situation, and the disappointment, though opposing, and I'll explain what I mean in a second, the, the disappointment, the sickness, the heartache is the same. So, so look at unemployment. Man, I wish I had a job. I need a job. I have to find a job. Boy, I wish I had a job. I was like, anything I could do to get a job. And then you have somebody who has a job that says, I hate this job. Why do I have to have this job? I would do anything not to have this job. You have the disappointment of singleness at times. I wish I was married. I would love just to be married. If I could be married, then this, this, and this. And then, unfortunately, you have marriages where people are in the marriage saying, I would do anything not to be married. Childlessness. If I could only have a child, it would fix all of this. It would give me meaning, fulfillment. And then there's the child who's walked away. The child who's made your life difficult. This is interesting. You've got, you've got somebody over here who's just like, man, I, I can't be successful in anything. Everything I try, it's like I've got the opposite of the Midas touch. I touch it, it just falls to pieces right in front of me. I would long, I'd love just to be successful, just for a minute. And then you've got this guy over here who's like, I have got everything. He's got the Solomon thing going. Everything I touch turns to gold, and I'm still miserable. The disappointment, discouragement comes from all types of angles. And what I need to encourage you and remind you of is this. Disappointments are not sin. But they can be the breeding ground for sin. Disappointment, discouragement can quickly lead to depression. And, and let me, I don't have time to go into all the details here, but let me just throw this out there and, and make sure you hear this clearly. Depression is real. It's real among Christians. 
And it is not sin. Uh, Be careful. You heard that, right? Much harm has been done by people who believe they're teaching good theology and yet they're yelling at people that you're depressed, well, you just need to have stronger faith. That that is an incorrect understanding of what faith actually is. If you are going through depression, I'm going to encourage you, be vulnerable with somebody. Be vulnerable with the people who are closest to you. Do, do the, the, throw yourself on God, flop yourself on God, rest in God, fix your eyes on Jesus, and go talk to a doctor. If somebody gets a cancer um, 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 prognosis, we, we don't, we're like, okay, we're going to pray for you, we're going to pray for you, but we don't say, we're going to pray for you, now don't go see a doctor. Part of God's healing in the lives of those people are the medical professionals who have spent all the time diagnosing and prescribing treatments for these things. And so we're going to pray and we're going to cover you in prayer. We're going to lay our hands on you. We're going to anoint you with oil. And then we're going to send you off to the nearest oncologist to get that thing taken care of, right? Why would we be different when it comes to depression? I think sometimes in our own ways, in an effort to become wise, We've made ourselves fools. We haven't handled those things well. But depression isn't the problem. It's what you do from there that matters most. The, 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 the real problems develop when we allow depression to fester, to, to become bitter, to ferment. And that's when disappointment and discouragement and depression, they grow, and then they lead to disobedience. That's the problem. The problem is when we have something we desire so much and yet it's been delayed or even denied and it hasn't come to us and so we are willing to do things that otherwise we would never do to attain it. And this, this is a scriptural thing. Our thinking becomes disobedient when we begin to overlook the clear and obvious gifts that God has given to us while we focus on the things he won't give to us. So, so you, you think, and maybe you don't think, I instantly think of the story in Genesis chapter 28, 29, 30, that area, when, when Jacob falls in love. Maybe you're not familiar with the story. It's a beautiful story. Jacob's looking for a, a wife. He goes to the well. These shepherds show up at the well. And it's interesting, in Genesis chapter um, 29, it says that it takes shepherds to come and remove the stone from the well. So it's a multiplicity of people who show up and move the stone so that they can get water out of the well, and then they close it. Well, Jacob is there at the well, and it says very clearly the stone is in front. And so then all of a sudden these other shepherds show up, and then Rachel shows up. And basically Jacob's description of Rachel is, whoa. It's in the Hebrew. <laughs> While he's still speaking, Rachel comes with her father's sheep, where she was a shepherdess. As soon as Jacob saw his uncle Laban's daughter, Rachel with his sheep, do you know what he did? Forget waiting for the rest of the shepherds. He runs over to the stone that's covering the well, and he's like, hey, baby. And then it says he runs up to Rachel and begins to weep and kiss her. It's a strong move right out of the gate, boys. That's aggressive. <laughs> But he's weeping. Maybe she likes that, that sensitive, strong type. I'm not sure. But he's weeping and kissing her. And he just, I mean, obviously, he's got great affection for her. And you know the story. He goes back to her dad, Laban, and, 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 and says, I will work seven years for this woman. That's love. 
Most guys complain about three months' salary for an engagement ring. He's going seven years. After seven years, the moment has come. Jacob's ready to marry his love, Rachel, who is, as I described earlier, whoa. And under the cover of darkness at the wedding ceremony, Laban pulls a trick. And instead of giving Rachel to Jacob, he gives Rachel's younger sister, older sister, sorry, Leah, who, as Jacob would describe her, instead of, whoa, it's wow. Leah is given to Jacob as a wife. Jacob wakes up in the morning, rolls over, is like, what happened? And Laban says, hey, it's our custom in our country. I don't know where it is, where you come from, but where we live here, we don't ever give away the younger sister before the older sister's married. So, well, that would have been helpful information earlier on. So now Jacob's married to Leah, and Laban says, seven more years, you can have Rachel. And Jacob says, I will gladly do that. That's how much he loved Rachel. Fourteen years he was willing to work for her. You fast forward into their story, and what you find is this. Genesis chapter 29, verse 31 says, When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. Rachel, though, was unable to conceive. A couple key components in that. Notice who it was that brought about the child. There were no tricks. There was no magic. It was God who opened the womb. And this begins this wrestling match between Rachel and Leah that is played out even in the names of their children. So Leah knows she is unloved. She knows that Rachel's got all the attention of their husband. And so, so now God has opened Leah's um, womb, and now Leah gives birth, and it says that the name of the child, sorry, she conceived, the name of the first child is Reuben, which means the Lord has seen my affliction. Surely my husband will love me now. It's a good thing to name your firstborn. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and she said, the Lord has heard that I am unloved. You noticing a theme here? She conceives again, at last my husband will become attached to me because I have given him three sons, and his name was Levi. Her fourth son, she said, this time I'll praise the Lord. Leah longed for the affection of her husband, so much so that as God gave her the gifts of these little boys, she looked right past them. Rachel, on the other hand, who is loved by Jacob, so much so he was willing to work for 14 years to get her hand in marriage, comes to Jacob in chapter 30, verse 1, and says this to her husband, who loves her, give me sons or I will die. Jacob becomes angry and says, am I in God's place? It's, it's, it's not me that's withholding children from you. God has closed your womb. Fast forward a little further in the story, and God remembers Rachel, chapter 30, verse 22. He opens Rachel's womb. She conceives and bears a son, and she says, God has taken away my disgrace, and she names her firstborn son Joseph. Anybody heard of Joseph before? A hero, right? Do you know what his name means? May God give me another son. 
Rachel longed for children. She had the affection of her husband like her other sister did not have. When God finally opened her womb and she gave birth to this child that she had longed for, she looked at this bouncing bundle of joy and said, man, I can't wait to have another one. Disobedience grows out of a festering disappointment that hasn't been dealt with. And one of the ways we disobey is we overlook God's obvious gifts to us while we look for the thing he's withheld from us. We consider, consider disobeying in ways that we never would have even joked about. I mean, the godliest of saints begin thinking of doing things that are so outside of their own personal morals in order to attain the thing that they long for so much that, that you can't even wrap your head around it. I, I'm not going to share any personal illustrations. I'll just share this. There have been times I have sat in an office or in a coffee shop or been on the phone with somebody and listened to somebody who I had great respect for and hear some of the things that they have chosen to do to attain that thing that they wanted so bad that they were overlooking everything that was in front of them, and I I am utterly shocked. I'm utterly shocked like you would be if you were to meet Abraham and hear that Abraham thought it was a good idea to, to go in unto Hagar, which was his wife Sarah's handmaid, when God had promised Sarah would have a child, but it wasn't happening fast enough. We're still waiting. When's God going to come through? It's been years. It's been years. It's been years. It's been years. How come we're not having a son yet? How come we're not having a child yet? I'll tell you what. Let's work around what God had said and let's solve this problem ourselves. And Ishmael is born. That's gone really well, hasn't it? Ishmael, the father of the Arab nations, the father of the nations that continue at odds with Israel. See, disobedience, though in the moment seems like it'll help, it doesn't help at all. Disobedience always makes it worse. So whatever situation you find yourself in, where you're finding yourself disappointed, you're finding your heart sick, let me tell you right now, walking away, cheating, stealing, quitting, suicide. Stop now. Repent. Confess it and walk the other way. Because disobedience never delivers on its promise. It only harms. And, and, and I'm telling you, disappointment cannot be avoided. Disobedience can be. Our disobedience, um, if responded to correctly, can become a platform for the display of God's grace. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Why don't you turn there? 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You might want to throw a marker in 13, 12. I'm going to go back and close that loop at the end here. Second Corinthians chapter 12. Let me uh, start reading in verse 6. 
For if I want to boast, I wouldn't be a fool because I'd be telling you the truth, but I'll spare you so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me, especially because of these extraordinary revelations. Therefore, so that I wouldn't exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this thorn, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. It's not there. Three times, Paul fell on his face and begged God to take this thorn from him. We don't know what it is. Um, Lots of theories out there about what it could be. But it was a reminder to him constantly of how weak he was. And, and when you read Paul in other places of Scripture, what you find is, is that Paul's greatest desire, Paul's greatest desire was for, for God to be magnified in his body. Everything he did was to make much of, of who God was and what God was doing. And, and, and here, what you hear from Paul's lips is, I, I want God, to remove this thorn from me, and I want it so badly that I'm willing to beg for it, and I want that thorn to be removed so that I can give God my strength. I want that to be removed so I can accomplish so much more for God because this thing keeps coming in and getting in the way. I want this to be removed. I want this to be removed. I want this to be removed. Paul wanted his life to be a stage. He wanted his life to be a screen so that that when people saw him, what they actually saw was Jesus. And when God answered Paul, after Paul had pleaded with God for three times to get this thorn out of him, to remove this stumbling block, to remove this distraction, to remove this constant reminder of his weakness, God's answer to Paul was, I don't need your strength. I need a vessel where I can display my strength. See, after Paul pleads three times that this thorn would leave him, verse 9, God says to Paul, but my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. See, God knew that that if he gave Paul the answer to both of his prayers, God, I want to glorify you in everything you do. I want you to remove this thorn so that I might be able to use my strength to serve you. God knew by answering both of those prayers, they would conflict and one would get in the way of the other. So instead, God gave Paul a platform and said, in your weakness, you will find my grace and my strength is real. Verse 9 again, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So therefore, the words of Paul, I'll most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. I will take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties all for the sake of Jesus Christ. Because when I am weak, that's when I'm strong. 
And Paul used, or sorry, God used Paul's weakness to be a greater display of God's strength and his grace. I mean, that pain, that, that disappointment, that long process, all of that became the platform. And Paul learned that in God's weakness, his strength is perfected. Church, in your disappointment, in your weaknesses, you depend on him. And he'll show himself to be more than sufficient. There's a grace that's available for us. And, and God wants to share it with us. He wants us to have the ability, the strength, the power, the grace for every moment. He desires that for us. All right, Frank, so if God wants me to have the strength and the power and the ability to, to make it through all these things, then why doesn't he just give it to me at once? Okay, fair question. And I think to answer that question, you have to go back to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness with grumbling, hungry stomachs. As they wander in the wilderness crying out for food, God does this miracle, and, and they wake up in the morning, they look out, and there's, there's wafers all over the ground, and they walk out of their, their tents, and they say, manna, what is it? And God gives some very specific instructions for the people of Israel. And he says, you go and you collect enough for that day. You gather enough for that day. No more than that day. Because if you would gather more manna than you could eat in that day or your family could eat in that day, then, then that manna would go, it would spoil, it would go bad. It would be filled with worms. It would become just gross and disgusting. And, and, and it would be exactly the opposite of how delightful it was when you woke up in the morning. And, and God says to them, listen, you go get what you need for today, but no more, no less. Well, how's that fair? How do we plan, right? How do you plan? Shouldn't you stockpile some just in case? The lesson that God was trying to show the children of Israel is this. You need me. Every day, you need my faithfulness. You need me to show up. And if you can go and get as much as you want and just stockpile it, then you don't need me anymore. You don't need me anymore. And you need to understand, you need me. Just like we need them. Every day. Every moment, every hour. Asking for his strength, asking for his grace, asking for power for every day. And when we do that, when we rely on him every day, when we lean on him every day, when we flop ourselves on top of him every day and ask him to carry us, ask him to be the strength that, that, that gets us through each day, each moment, each hour, then we're declaring three things. We're declaring that God's grace is sufficient, that it's enough. That's why Paul says, that's why I'm going I'm to brag about my weakness so I can experience and declare more of God's grace each and every day. I mean, okay, I make fun of my baldness a lot up here, but I certainly don't brag about it every day. I mean, if, if it meant that if I bragged about my baldness, then I would have instant hair growth, I may still not brag about my baldness. Because the promise of instant hair growth in today's modern medicine usually means like here. But Paul was so comfortable with flopping on God and relying on his strength in the midst of his weakness 
that he was bragging about his weakness so that he'd have more of God's strength. So what disappointments do you have? What heartaches are you wrestling with? What discouragement has settled in on you? There's your weakness. And in the middle of your weakness, God's grace is sufficient. The second thing we declare as we rely on God every day for our strength and grace is we declare a very simple fact. God is God and I am not. Simple. Far from easy. God's ways aren't my ways. His thoughts aren't my thoughts. And as hard as it is to swallow at times, God does in fact know what's best for us. Yeah, I'm not seeing it in this one, Frank. Hey, I'll be honest with you. Neither am I. But he is. He's never failed before. What makes you think you'll be the first? God's God. I'm not. The third thing we declare as we lean on God day in and day out for his strength is something that was said in a prayer this week when I was sitting in a room. And here's the declaration. We may have to wait, but we won't be disappointed. Leaning on him day in and day out, man, that means we may have to wait for a very long time, and the answer may be later, 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 or it may, in fact, be never But all in all, because God is God and he is good, we will never be disappointed. And this is why he's good. Jesus Christ came in flesh. He became my sin. And though he was perfect and spotless, and he took it to the cross, and he defeated it in his death, and then he embarrassed my sin by resurrecting from the dead. With all of that being said, here's the reality. He has overcome. You and I haven't overcome anything. He has overcome. And when we rely on him, you know what he's going to do? Carry us into eternity. Be careful of the people who stand before you and say, if you would just trust more, believe more, read more, pray more, go to church more, give more, then he'll come through. That's garbage. And what that's saying is you have power to overcome on your own if you just throw a couple more nickels in the offering basket. Now, in your weakness, God showed up. Christ came to make peace knowing that we could never make peace with God on our own. And knowing Jesus and knowing Jesus crucified, it changes absolutely everything. So someday, I may have to wait, but I won't be disappointed because I will experience hope like I could never imagine when one day I am face to face with Jesus Christ. And that's what he's talking about in Proverbs 13, verse 12. I'll just end the verse here because that's where he ends the verse. Good idea. Does hope delayed makes the heart sick? But desire fulfilled? The tree of life. Think back to the Garden of Eden. 
how perfect and wonderful it was. When that hope, that dream, when that, that ultimate need is, is fulfilled in your life, it is like a tree of life. It is like the motherload of joy. And it will never grow old. There's hope. No matter how disappointed you are and how discouraged you are, there's hope. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, um, right now I pray you would help me explain what's coming next well so that I would honor only you. While you're here with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, um, I'm asking that uh, the prayer teams that we've talked to for this morning's service would come forward and be ready to pray with those who would like prayer. If you're a guest with us, even if you're, <laughs> if you're not a guest with us, it's not typical that we do a come forward type invitation at the end of our service, but this morning it seems appropriate. So with all the, the, the disappointments and the discouragements we deal with in life, with how hard it is to rely on God's grace, to rely on his wisdom, and being able to wait for real hope in an age when we don't wait for anything, we want to encourage you. So this morning, as music will play, the, the altar is open for prayer. So maybe you want to come and you want to pray alone. That's fine. Maybe you'd like someone to pray with you. So I've asked these men, these women, these couples to come and be available to pray with you, for you, and over you. So for some of you, this would be a time where you can come forward and ask God to give you the strength to seek his will rather than your own. For some of you, it'll be a time when you come seeking God's forgiveness for foolish choices that you made. And for some of you, this will just be a visible declaration of a decision that you've already made there in your seat. That you purpose to lean into the grace that God has promised you. And that you want to be a platform for the display of God's strength and grace in the days ahead. So maybe some of you want to talk to someone about what it means to, to know Jesus, to follow Jesus. Then that's what these folks are here for. But for all of you, the altar is open, and you're invited to come and pray. Father, um, take our time, our prayers, our words, and align them with yours. Pray you'd heal the heartbroken, that you'd forgive the disobedient, and you'd save the lost. In all of this, I pray you would remind us of the hope we have in Jesus Christ and in him alone. I pray for those who would like to come forward and yet are fearful. Lord, would you give them courage and boldness to do just that. May all of our hearts cry out to you. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.